You're listening to The Profile. Hi, welcome to The Profile podcast. I'm Andy Peck. For the past 17 years, I've been interviewing Christian leaders in the church and charity worlds and in the wider culture. It was John Maxwell who famously said, leadership is influence. It's our prayer that these conversations will help you in whatever spheres you have influence for God, whether in the home, at church, in your workplace or elsewhere. The show is brought to you by Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. Get full online access and the print magazine every month by becoming a subscriber. See special offers available now at premierchristianity.com. It has always been a complex issue to decide who to give your money to. You might want to give to those who are especially deserving, or perhaps to those especially poor. Or you may like to give only to charities that you regard as legitimate, and let them decide how to parcel your money out. I certainly wouldn't want to give to someone who might be hindered by my gift. So I'd be rather sceptical if someone who's clearly been drinking, asked me for money when I suspect that the money will be spent on more alcohol. Maybe that's obvious. But this issue is also key for local churches who are looking to best serve the community in which they're based and the connection they have with the worldwide church. How do they decide what to do? Well, I'm joined today by Alan Cutting, who has served as a pastor and planter of churches in the UK and Belgium, and also with Samaritan's Purse, Tear Fund, the Grassroots Trust, and other charities as a church and community transformation consultant. He's written a book entitled Raising Families, Envisioning the Church to Empower Its Neighbourhood, where he outlines 12 of the key lessons learned from some 3,000 churches that he's worked with in Central Asia and Africa. So I'm looking forward to discussing this key area for Christians and leadership. So lovely to have you along to the Leadership Show, Alan. Thank you very much, Andy. So you served as a pastor and church planter. So how did you get into development work? When we had a young church in Kettering, North Hants, we were really known in the town for doing a lot of fun stuff on the streets and evangelism through some actually some really excellent music and drama and dance, things like that. And it, it would gather a crowd and a few people came to know God through it all. But as we reflected on it, it positioned us as, you know, a little bit weird, certainly very different, alternative, oddly separate, disengaged, if you like, from those around us. And it was quite hard to build friendships in the community. But then, I don't know, a year or two later, we became intrigued with what Jesus said about the poor always being with you. And slowly we became known as the church that walked with the poor and but invested a lot of energy and resources into development work in Sri Lanka and Romania and Nicaragua. And a really interesting observation, people no longer avoided us in the street. They became interested. They, they began to ask lots of questions, and even the local authority beat a path to our door with offers of grants and such like. So I began to tussle with issues of what it really meant to be salt and light in our neighbourhoods and wider afield. And I guess it was this that led me down a path towards what could commonly be called community development. But I really would want to say, Andy, in no way have I abandoned the need to proclaim the gospel, far from it. But I want to do so in a way that really deeply listens and 
expresses kindness and that seeks to recognize the felt needs of people and the causes of our brokenness. So, yeah, this is the spirit in which I sought to function in my 15 years of work around the world with Samaritan's Purse. So clearly, Alan, aid charities have had to grapple with how to best serve the communities in which they're working. Uh, So perhaps you can give us a kind of broad insight into the kind of questions that they need to ask uh, in order to make the decisions they make to work out how best to serve. Yeah, I guess simple answer, where to work, who to work with, what to do, how to do it. Sounds a bit too like Cluedo, though, doesn't it? (laughs) Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with a lead pipe. But I, I like the way your question was phrased in that it does assume the asking of questions. And I really think many initiatives fail because those seeking to serve their communities have just not asked enough questions. They've not listened well enough to the responses or or maybe they've stopped asking questions halfway through. And I strongly believe that we need to give the agenda away or we'll never get local people to actually own it. You know, and if people locally don't own the initiative themselves, it will actually never bring about transformation. It will just be a project, you know, with a beginning, a middle and end. And I, I think a lot of Christians have been, what should we say, dreadfully good at pointing to their neighbourhoods and saying, we know how you need to live. But the good ideas of the church or of the aid agency or of social services, well, they'll, they'll never be seen as anything other than vaguely interesting, maybe even patronising external project by those they're seeking to support. And I even found this in a disaster response environment where, I, and I'm thinking of uh, the tsunami in uh, Sri Lanka where I went 2004-2005, uh, where there's such a lot of pressure, just because I was the foreigner, I was the representative of a big agency. Alan, come and decide where this community should be rebuilt. Come and decide when the fishermen should fishermen should get back to you know, onto the sea. And ridiculous that, that a foreigner should should be responsible for all these things. So even in that pressured, urgent environment, I was desperately trying to find ways of tapping into the values and the culture and the heartbeat and the pain of those impacted. How would you describe your kind of philosophy of ministry? Well, I, I really believe in what sometimes called holistic or integral mission. You know, that that all aspects of our lives are linked and consequently our gospel should be as well. So I believe that the proclamation and the demonstration and, if you like, the manifestation of our gospel should seamlessly work together without any conflict or being put into different compartments. And as a model for this, I loved that time. You recall, Andy, when Jesus... He went into the synagogue, I think it's Luke chapter 4, it was at Nazareth. He stood up to read a passage of scripture from Isaiah, and wonderful scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Rolled up the scroll, sat down, everyone's eyes were glued on him. You can just imagine it, can't you? Today, he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because basically, I think Jesus was saying, look, my father and I are interested in every single one of you, whoever you are, and in every single aspect of your life, whatever your circumstances. So there really is no space for evangelists and social activists to argue with one another. 
the life and the heart of God weaves seamlessly through every aspect of our lives. So you've written this book, which explores some of the 12 principles from around 3,000 churches. So maybe you could share what some of those lessons were, perhaps mention the, the, the most successful and perhaps the least successful of the projects you're involved with. Well, maybe I can just explain the brief framework of, of how, it, how it functioned. Um, it was a programme. We would work through local NGOs, Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan and, and Africa, Swaziland and Eswatini as it is now, Zambia, Uganda, Rwanda, bit in Belarus and Ukraine in Eastern Europe. And we would seek to envision and mobilise local churches. And these are really usually very, very small rural churches, to urge them to commit to walking with plenty of the very poorest, most marginalised families in their village or neighbourhood over a period of three years. And during that time, they'd work together on how to access healthcare and get their children to school and how to get crops in the field and food on the table and find peace with their neighbours and overcome addictions and, and grow in their relationship with God. Really interestingly, the program even worked well where the church was tiny and persecuted. It's not really the image we have, is it, of the persecuted church or hidden away in some dark corner. But these guys were out there in the street building relationships and gaining a lot of respect. I think probably the most challenging communities I had to work with were those where the work ethic had been really damaged by too many aid agencies giving them things. You know, we also had to look very seriously at whether we were do this sort of programming where the communities were suffering long-term drought. Although when I got nervous about this and thought maybe I need to revert to some sort of aid mechanism, the local guys were all saying, no, 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 we, we really want to prove God at this level to see this whole development thing in the name of Jesus would work in the context of a long-term drought. So, yeah, it was just over 3,000 churches, worked with just under 60,000 families over a six-year period. So they were looking at things physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially, societally. And during that time, you know, 14,700 people told us that because of the way the church was loving them and walking with them, well, that had encouraged them to come into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So, you know, we don't want to turn the churches into NGOs, but simply train up church activists to address the needs of the poor in respect of their health, their education, their livelihoods, shelter, protection, those big basic building blocks of community development. Alan, that's terrific. I mean, I, <laughs> you've said that very matter-of-factly, but uh, that's wonderful to hear that level of growth in the local churches through, through what's been happening. Yeah, it really was. It was so simple uh, and yet so effective. And I honestly... And I would pinch myself, think that, you know, it's not my great skills or vision or strategic sense of brilliance that was doing this. I was, you know, don't they say good mission is seeing where God is at work and joining in? And I really felt like I was steering a moving object. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. Well, that's brilliant. You've, you've hinted at my next question, really. You've said UK churches deal with the needs as they see them rather than the true needs of the community. And I've heard that that said before and you you that would be true in your experience i think it is certainly in places i mean this we're obviously talking about sweeping statements and generalizations aren't we but i think i would refer back to the 
what I mentioned earlier about the need for listening. And I was really impressed that the Gospels, I counted them up one day, the Gospels record Jesus asking 137 questions by my calculations. And they were amazing. You know, what do you want me to do for you? Who do you say that I am? Do you want to get well? Do you love me? Has no one condemned you? And I think the nature of these questions, it, they, they, they drew people out. They enabled them to think for themselves, to come to their own conclusions, you know, to become masters of their own destiny. And I, I, I think the other thing is that we can tend to respond to needs on our own terms, necessarily 100% of the UK church, but still we basically work to an attractional model. And we're quite good at it. You know, welcome, come to this, come to that. But underlying that is this sense that we come to where we feel safe, you know, where we control the agenda, where we know what the culture is and we know how to behave. It's all one way. And we, you know, we say come, but Jesus said go. And clearly it's messier out there and complex and a bit scary at times. So in the UK, we we typically have a a kind of range of support for those in need. Our situation is very different from many parts of the world. So, but you obviously think that you can transfer some of the principles from Central Asia, Africa to the UK. Okay, well, I'm sure around the world people would agree that I would love to see the UK church genuinely sitting at the feet of their brothers and sisters in these parts of the world, learning some of the lessons they learned, certainly cloaking themselves with some of the passion that I would see in these places. And yeah, as you say, it's learning from the principles, the values, the approaches that they had in order to connect with their neighbours with you know, intelligent and Christ-like compassion. I think every church activist and every pastor is tussling with how to connect and post-COVID reconnect you know, with a very rapidly changing society. So, yeah, this is why I wrote Raising Families, um, subheading Envisioning the Church to Empower Its Community. Um, and in that book, we do look at the need for mindset change and paradigm shift, if I can flog a well-used expression. And there were various aspects to that. They were very simple, really. From, for example, from being buildings-based to being community-based. I remember a, a woman pastor in northern Kyrgyzstan. And she went through this envisioning and she said, you know, I used to have a vision for a bigger church and now I have a vision for a better community. And it seemed such a very simple statement, but I've been unpacking that and thinking it and quoting it for several years now. Yes. Because it was just really, really good. You know, she, she had this classic image of, you know, I've got to build this thing that basically happens in a building. And then she was liberated to, to the community. But other things as well, we've talked about it, moving from dualism to a more holistic or integral approach, just shifting along this um, spectrum, really, in a certain direction from, from going in, a, from, from approaching things with an aid or a charity approach to more of a development and discipleship approach. We tussle with that in the book as well, and or from a project mentality to a more relational approach, you know more ex externally imposing ideas, shifting through to locally owned approach, turning individual activists into teams. You know, most churches have got some wild and wonderful people who do the stuff and do all of it and get totally exhausted and die at 41. <laughs> but, you know, if we can turn that into 
um, teams and individual churches as well into networks, the one church in the community. And we can really start using our resources and you know, people can see the oneness of the church in a, in a location. Another one which is really interesting, I'll just put this one in as, as well, Andy, from part of it is about being, you know, once the churches have got outside their own doors and into their communities, they very often settle for this aid approach because it's easier, really. But, but I would love to see churches no longer looking focused at needs but becoming more asset-based. And we used to say this with the guys that we were training. Remember what God said to Moses, Exodus 4, what do you have in your hands? Or Elisha to the widow, 2 Kings 4, what do you have in your house? So have a look, get more focused on the assets than on the needs. The needs can depress us. But if we can have a fresh look at the assets that we have got, and it may be very subtle, it might be access, it might be time, it might be you know, a plot of land, it could be anything. But obviously the practical outworking needs very careful contextualising. But yeah, I really hope that some of these principles and others will really, really help give the point people, cause them to face the right direction or an exciting direction that will take them into more. Yeah. It's kind of the case of not thinking in terms of a my a poverty materially but also sometimes as a poverty of mindset and and people don't see what's in front of them and and especially as you come along more wealthy and apparently more educated then that further impoverishes the people you're trying to help i guess and and you're saying well actually let's think in terms of a different mindset yeah yeah in a nutshell um so I don't know. I've, I've I've read of the debate within aid charities about this approach of not giving handouts except in times of disaster, and and there seems to be lots of merit to that. Except, of course, context is always key when it comes to providing aid. Hmm. Um, and I'm guessing, and you you you're more experienced at this. That sometimes it's a a case of making the best judgment, knowing that there may be some un- unintended consequences to your actions. Would that be fair? I think it's a very good observation indeed. Uh, you know, under, well, firstly, understanding and respecting the context is absolutely crucial, isn't it? But I, I do think, again, I'm going big picture, if I may, and it, it feels to me that sweeping statement, but that we, the church tends to think in its outreach to others or to those in some sort of need, 80% aid and 20% development. You know, aid is easy. It makes us feel good. It's neat and clean. We've done it. But, you know, we would all really understand if you look at the next layer down that it's really just a sticking plaster and doesn't actually result in transformation. So I would like love to see that 80-20 thing turned on its head, you know, 20% aid. In other words, where aid is absolutely necessary for life or, for example, where we're serving the frail elderly or those with maybe you know significant learning disabilities or you know refugees without any access to resource to public funds etc but that 80% of our thinking actually goes into development into equipping people to help themselves and i think even where we give the 20% we do need to 
do that with our eyes open, you know, always challenging ourselves. How can we move from aid into development? Because so many projects and churches get stuck in this sort of aid box and never move out of it. And you know, I think I mentioned it before, I've seen communities, I'm thinking of perhaps of northern Uganda, particularly after the LRA atrocities of a few years ago, where the work ethic was hugely damaged by dozens of aid agencies turning up and handing things out. You know, they even paid what they called sitting fees for local people. Come and sit in on our training and we'll pay you. And, you know, some people made a living out of it. <laughs> and I find that that sort of dependency is really quite dangerous and very damaging thing. Don't you come, have you come across Robert Lupton? Um, a really hard-hitting book called Toxic Charity. A little I bit have. too hard-hitting for me. I'm a bit of a softie at heart. And yeah. I found, you know, a little bit cringeworthy in some ways. But he said something absolutely brilliant, which, again, I've taken with me around the globe and people have really locked into it hooked into it if you like he said give once and you elicit appreciation give twice and you create anticipation give three times and you create expectation <laughs> give four times and it becomes entitlement give five times and you establish dependency and unpacking that there's a lot of truth in it really and uh, i think we need to have our antennas up our eyes open uh, to the nature of dependency how it happens and maybe some alternatives about what we can do about it thank you alan and when you were talking about northern uganda you talked about the lras and i should have asked you what that stood for uh the lord's resistance army oh yes indeed yeah yeah i remember Yes, yeah, so they were stuff that was yes, indeed, they were, in they were engaging and... engaging young men particularly were in 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 awful atrocities, weren't they? Dreadful stuff involving school children. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um so Alan, what would you say to the church leader who's looking to make the best decision regarding who to fund? Maybe there's some existing charities, or maybe they're thinking actually we need to to start afresh, or maybe there's a they're a new church. And they're wondering how to engage appropriately in this whole area. Are there some rules of thumb that you would use? Yes, I think I think there are, and it's quite a topical question, really. Um, in in the light of what we've discussed, I'd certainly encourage church leaders to ask agencies a few more questions as to how they operate. I guess in my mind, I'm thinking of those that are further away and that we don't necessarily see from week to week but it's topical because i'm currently doing a review of the missions agencies that my own church supports okay mm. in, in the uk there there are currently 35 of them oh wow some of, them in, some of them international some of them regional some of them local yeah it's amazing well it's either amazing or crazy and that's what <laughs> i've been tasked to have a look at really but you know together they receive 15 percent of our church's income and i'm really really pleased with that that's excellent isn't it yeah. uh, and we want to be uh, and we're gaining a bit of a reputation for being a resourcing and ascending church and i'm just delighted with that but i think i would say generally uh maybe which of these agencies are doing stuff that is most compatible with the vision and the values and the direction and the story of our own church don't want to hit conflict at that level also do they still have a burning vision 
that they still have some sort of flexibility to follow where God is leading in a post-COVID world? Or have they got stuck somewhere along the line and they're just doing what they're always doing? And it's a tough question to, to, to consider. But, you know, what they say the um, last words of a dying organisation, but we've always done it this way. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think also I would want to know which which of these agencies give the most opportunity for a reciprocal, you know, mutually beneficial relationship. How can we stir one another up and build one another up in love? And then some of the obvious sort of baseline things: do they operate under their own robust and transparent policies? You know, not not just bolting on the policies of some sort of Western organisation, but you know, they've worked this out for themselves. Um, here's a really contentious one. Do they deliver value for money? Not a question that's often asked. You know, people always say, well, and I totally agree with this. If it's for one person, it's worth it. But I think the problem is that we don't dig deeper and actually ask the value for money questions. Or do they have strategies, if you like, for moving forward towards some sort of financial sustainability? Some some of the practical things, but in the end, I think it's relational. We've got to feel comfortable with that relationship. That's fabulous. And uh, of course, you've hinted at the fact that mission organisations have had to move from a kind of West to the rest mentality to embrace Mm -hmm. the fact that parts of the world are much more buoyant spiritually than, than the West. And, and we need to take cognizance of that as we, go forward so that mission organizations are well represented worldwide very much so it's definitely the direction of travel and i'm very glad i mean it will it will hopefully please god sort out some of the grotesque and and some of the subtle power imbalances that we've all lived under for so many years so alan how might we connect with you in the future and uh how can we get a copy of this this book Hmm. that you've written well, thank you. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from listeners who want to tussle with some of these issues, be they church leaders or community activists, etc. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, you introduced me under the glorious title of a church and community development consultant, and that's, that's so. Um, but equally, just for a chat, I would love to hear from people. Push back on me, press back, and just, just say, hang on a minute, you know, explain this, or justify that or whatever um probably best to contact me through my website it's cuttingacross.com i'm alan cutting so it's cuttingacross.com where people can get the amazon link for any of my i've got four books on there but the one we've referred to and and worked through in a sense today is raising families and uh, so yeah those are the best thing cuttingacross.com and there's a contact page on there Brilliant. Well, that will enable us to drill down far more into what is, a, as I said at the start, a very complex issue. Um, mm. But thank you for teasing us and uh, encouraging us in our thinking today, Alan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a great joy to chat with Alan Cutting. And whether you are directly involved in the development world or as a church leader, have connections to that world. I hope you can see some of the leadership principles that he brought out. We're wise not to assume we have the answer or know what the need is, but need to ask questions and make assessments 
so we can make the most appropriate response to those in need. This is Andy Peck thanking you for your company and hoping you join me again next week. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.